It's nice that we have uh, raised the roof. Uh, good morning and uh, welcome to Lake Forest. Thank you. Good morning and welcome to Lake Forest Davidson. My name is Grace Seegers. I'm one of the pastors on staff here and I specifically work with missions and college students. And a quick shameless plug for all you college students out there, uh, starting this Wednesday night at 730 we're going to be starting a five-week Bible study going through the book of Galatians. doesn't matter if you've never read Galatians. doesn't matter how much you've even read the Bible. would love to have you 7.30 p.m. at the Cotton Mill. You might be asking, where is the Cotton Mill? I'm glad you asked. Our very own Michael Flake has drawn us a map. <laughs> These are for sale in the lobby, 8 by 10s and 18 by 24s. But yeah, so you see uh, the brick house there, the restaurant, right by the railroad tracks. And you got to go all the way down to kind of the tall end of the L there in our little entranceway is right under a staircase. There's a tiny sign. You would miss it, but, uh, but that's where it is. So we'd love to have you join us there. You don't have to come for, the, for all five weeks. We're going to obviously be off during spring break. But uh, yeah, we'd love to have you there. Let me know if you have any questions. But anyways, this morning, back to this morning, we're continuing in our series called Asking for a Friend. And during the series, we're going to be looking at four questions. We've already done one. Four questions that we would, quote, ask for a friend. And we call this series Asking for a Friend, kind of as a play on the phrase, because on one hand, these are questions that we might want to ask but don't feel comfortable asking or feel too embarrassed to ask. On the other hand, these are questions that a friend might actually ask us but that we feel unprepared or ill-equipped to answer. This week, (laughs) I love that, this week we're going to start taking a look at the question of how do we reconcile suffering and a good God? How do we reconcile suffering and a good God? Please pray with me. God, we come this morning hoping to understand what we can about a very mysterious and difficult question, difficult issue. Uh, Pray that you'd speak to us all today and you'd meet us in the midst of our questions or our suffering or our our doubts. And again, that you'd uh, make yourself known today. Your son's name. Amen. So, there's a professor in Oxford, England. He's a professor at Oxford. His name is John Lennox. And he once compared our world to the ruins of a great cathedral. A quick glance at a ruined cathedral, it reveals this unmistakable beauty, but also brokenness and destruction. You can't help but look and wonder what this cathedral might have looked like in its original beauty. So right here we have a photo of a City Methodist Church in Gary, Indiana. And even in its ruins, it's beautiful. The stained glass, the ceilings reaching up towards the sky, the archways and the huge blocks of stone, it all reveals this great care, expense, and planning that went into the original construction. Yet when we look closer, we see that this beauty is tainted by broken windows, partially collapsed roof exposing it to snow, wind, and rain, trash all over the ground, and most notably, Uh, The words, your mom, graffitied on the balcony there. See, on the left side. And I love that. because This this beautiful and glorious building comes right at you and screams, your mom. And And if that doesn't sum up the world, I don't know what does. The earth has this undeniable beauty, but also this undeniable brokenness. And it's easy to point to the beautiful things, sunsets, rivers, and mountains. Even little things like the joy of being with friends, reunions, and feeling truly known. But it's also really easy to point to the brokenness, destruction, pollution, war, natural disasters, genocide, loneliness, 
betrayal, being forgotten, losing loved ones. And in the midst of all that destruction, it's easy to lose sight of the beauty we once saw. It's easy to believe that this destruction is all there ever was. That there never was a cathedral. It's always just been ruins. And in the midst of this destruction and suffering, a lot of people will turn away from God. And I get that. To, to deny God feels like the only way to return the offense. And I landed there early in my sophomore year of college. I've been struggling with doubts for a couple of years. I've gotten very lonely, probably depressed, and had been praying to God to help me, help me believe, and I heard nothing. So I said, all right, God, this is how it's going to be. You're not walking out on me. I'm walking out on you. And some of you have been there. Some of you might be there right now. I'll tell you, though, that there's no light at the end of that tunnel. Because when you, when you completely take any high, higher power out of the equation, when you take ultimate meaning and justice out of the picture, the end of that road is called nihilism, which is a, a name for a belief that life is ultimately meaningless. That there's no meaning or purpose behind things happening, good or bad. And if you're a nihilist and tragedy strikes, against whom do you make your grievance? There's no one there. You got unlucky, there's no reason behind it, it just is. In his book, uh, A Confession, Leo Tolstoy, he asks this question that, that sums up nihilism to a T. He asks, is there any meaning in my life that my inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? As I said, it's a dark road to go down. But like I said, the, the impulse in the midst of suffering can be to deny God's existence, but I don't think doing that brings you any closer to peace, any closer to an answer on the question, the problem of suffering. It just brings you to more despair. But regardless of what your worldview is, we have to fit this existence of suffering into it because suffering exists. There's no denying that. And I won't go so far as to say that today we'll explain suffering or even make sense of suffering, but hopefully we can see how suffering can fit into Christianity how we can make some sense of suffering. Ultimately, I hope we can see how God can be trusted in suffering. And I believe that, that God can be trusted in suffering not because he prevents or eliminates all suffering, but because he redeems suffering. So how does God redeem suffering? Two ways. One, God redeems us through suffering, and then God redeems the suffering itself. God redeems us through suffering, and God redeems the suffering itself. So we'll start off, God redeems us through suffering. So going back to our original question, uh, it was how to reconcile suffering in a good God. And we've got to start with one part of that, because there's a lot there. What does it mean for a God to be good? I claim that a, a good God is not a magic genie who just gives us what we desire, what we want. And this can be a tough pill to swallow, because subconsciously or consciously, I think a magic genie is what a lot of us want out of God. In his book, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis writes that we want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven, a senile benevolence who, as they say, like to see young people enjoying themselves. What we sometime, sometimes want is this grandfatherly God who will pat us on the head and affirm what we desire and encourage the status quo, but what we have is a God who is determined to bring us true life. 
this invitation to true life and this desire to give us life and life to the full is part of what makes God good. And again, we'd often sometimes prefer that God stays in his lane and we'll stay in ours. We can get on board with some things, but when it comes to how we prioritize our time or our money or our relationships, we'd rather stick to our vision of true life. Where a magic genie might be content to leave us be, it is out of God's love that he refuses to leave us to our own devices, to our own destruction. And sometimes God uses pleasure to draw us in. Sometimes he pushes us along through pain, shakes us awake through suffering. And this is terrifying. But in many cases, I'm not sure that there's an alternative. In the book of Exodus, we read how God had, had freed the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And in addition to being free, they were promised this land where they would go and settle and be a nation. And they were told that despite their opponents who were living in this land being larger in size, being greater in number, and well defended, the Israelite forces would triumph. The Israelites, they had already trusted God to leave Egypt in the middle of the night, but shortly after escaping, they'd begun to doubt that God would care for them, despite how he had just come through time and time again. And as they approached this promised land, their doubt grew to the point that many did not want to go to battle. They looked at the opposition and said, there's no way. So despite God's faithfulness in bringing them out of slavery and miraculously providing food and water in the wilderness, they doubted God's ability to follow through on this, their latest challenge. It was fear. And rather than God forcing this battle upon them, God led them to wander in the wilderness outside of the promised land for 40 years. In those 40 years of, suf of suffering, living as wanderers, directionless and lost, God was at work in them. In the wilderness, without safety, security, and stability, they began a process of learning that all that they have is God. A lot of our suffering is teaching us that same lesson. I go back to C.S. Lewis, who, who explains God's use of suffering like the removal of a thorn in our finger. And this thorn can be anything that keeps us from trusting God. He writes, it's like a thorn in your finger, sir. You know when you set about taking it out yourself, you mean to get it out, you know it'll hurt, and it does hurt. But somehow it is not very serious business because you feel that you always could stop it if it was very bad. Not that you intend to stop. But it is a very different thing to hold your hand out to a surgeon to be hurt as much as he thinks fit and at his speed. Anyone out there who hates surgery knows you can go on suffering and delaying surgery for a long time, all the while living with and tolerating this problem. But we have a surgeon we can trust, and we all need surgery. And as nice and grandfatherly as it would be for God to just make the pain go away, that wouldn't change our problem. Suffering is the pain which drives us to the surgeon, and as hard as it can be to say in the midst of suffering, I'm thankful he calls us in. So God can use suffering to redeem us, but not all suffering is disciplinary. You can look at the book of Job or the blind man in John 9, 1 through 3, through whom we'll see that not only does God redeem us in suffering, but God redeems the suffering itself. So again, John 9, 1 through 3, we read, as Jesus went along, he saw a blind man from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? 
Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened to him so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So the disciples asked Jesus if this man's sins or this parent's sins had led to him being blind. And Jesus tells us it's neither. The suffering is not disciplinary. Instead, this suffering happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And I read that and I ask, doesn't this seem a little unfair that this man was born blind for the glory of God? That's where my mind first went. But I don't think that's what this reading, I don't think this reading, I don't think Jesus is telling us that in this reading. The disciples assume that this man's blindness is a result of something bad that this man or his parents have done, but Jesus is telling them this man's blindness is not headlined by the bad that will happen to him. But instead, the story on this man will be the good that came through it, that not only will he be healed and able to see again, but his eyes have been opened to God himself. And again, I ask, I know not every, not every blind person has their sight restored. Not every sick person is healed. But regardless of whether someone is healed or not, we consistently see throughout Scripture that God works through people like this blind man, through the unexpected, through the sickly, through the weak, through the paralyzed, through the tax collectors. Moses had a stutter. If there are any college football fans out there, you might have heard of uh, Tyler Trent, the Purdue superfan who, who died in January after a long battle with cancer. If you want to see the grace and love of God made manifest in his life, go watch the YouTube video of his funeral. So again, God often turns our world on its head and uses the most unlikely of characters to reveal his character. In 1 Corinthians 1.28, we read that God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are. In Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, great movies and even better books, we see that it is, not, it is not the strong and mighty men, it is not the noble and wise elves, not the strong dwarves, but it's the lowly, clumsy, and humble hobbits who play the leading role in the saving of Middle Earth. As the elf Gildor tells Frodo the Hobbit at the beginning of his journey, courage is found in unlikely places. Scripture reveals God is found in unlikely places. God came to earth in Jesus Christ, who was not the aristocratic son of a great ruler destined for greatness, but he was the son of a lonely couple born in a stable. God redeems suffering and turns it into salvation. But I'll be the first to admit that sometimes this redemption takes a long time to see. Sometimes we never see it at all. I got a text this week from a friend in Pennsylvania uh, asking me to pray because they were having a, a Young Life event on campus. And for those of you who don't know Young Life, it's a Christian outreach ministry for adolescents. And there's this event on campus that these four girls were driving to. On the, way to. on the way to the event, the conditions went from okay to terrible as the snow started pouring down and pretty much it became like whiteout conditions. And they lost control of the car and hit a semi. And two of these girls died. 15 years old, 16 years old, the other two are in critical condition. And as I heard this, I, I pictured the, the room of students buzzing with energy, waiting for this event to start, and then a, a leader having to step up to the microphone and say, what happened? How do you make sense of that? 
I can understand suffering in the context of discipline and, and God calling us towards him, but it's awful hard to understand here. I don't get that. I'm not going to stand up here and, and tell you that I do. There's a uh, professor at Yale named Nicholas Wolsterstorff, and, and his son tragically died in a climbing accident. And he wrestled with this same question, how do you make sense of that, in his book, Lament for a Son. And he writes, how is faith to endure, O oh God, when you allow all this scraping and tearing on us? You have allowed rivers of blood to flow, mountains of suffering to pile up, sobs to become humanity's song, all without lifting a finger that we could see. You've allowed bonds of love beyond number to be painfully snapped. If you have not abandoned us, explain yourself. We strain to hear. But instead of hearing an answer, we catch sight of God himself, scraped and torn. Through our tears, we see the tears of God. We see God's tears after the death of Jesus' friend Lazarus. Jesus arrives at Mary's house. Mary was Lazarus' sister shortly after Lazarus died. And we read in John 11. When Jesus saw her weeping, Mary, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? Jesus asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. It's the shortest English verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. In those two words, we see that in the midst of Mary's heartbreak, in the midst of our heartbreak, God whispers to us, my heart is broken too. In those two words, God does not deny suffering, but he steps into it. Jesus wept at the death of a friend, at the sorrow of a sister. Some of you know what happened to Lazarus. Later in chapter 11, Jesus brought him back to life. And I'm sure Jesus knew ahead of time what he was going to do. He was going to raise Lazarus back to life. But before he did that, Jesus wept. And in that weeping, he acknowledged that even the death which will be reversed brings suffering. Loss brings sorrow. As all this was going on, some of the people around Mary asked a question, and I love this. Why did this young man, Lazarus, have to die at all? Why did a sister have to bury her brother? This is, this is what they ask, word for word. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? And I think that's a good question. Why make the blind man blind only to heal him? Why have Lazarus die only to raise him up again? Why doesn't God just go around suffering altogether. Just avoid suffering in general. He could, but he's not. I think 2 Corinthians 4.17 points us to something here, where it says all, that our troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that outweighs them all. So what they're saying is somehow this suffering is creating a glory which is greater Tim Keller talks about this dream he once had. I've actually had a dream very similar. I assume some of you probably have too. It's a pretty common dream. Where in my dream, I was in my house and I went and discovered that both my brothers had been killed. I went to my parents' room, I saw that they'd been killed. It was a terrifying dream. Then I woke up 
I was still shaken for a few moments, but then realized it was only a dream. They were all alive. And then I went to them room by room, and I, I was filled with gratitude and thankfulness that they were even alive. They were still there. My love for them was made stronger through this horrible dream. The suffering somehow made the reality richer. The hurt made the goodness sweeter. And this is just a, a, a weak glimpse of what I believe heaven will be. The ruins of the cathedral will be restored. The ones we've lost will be back walking around, speaking to us, hugging us again. And the reunion will somehow be, have been made sweeter by our parting. We're promised in Revelation 21.4 that God will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. The old order, suffering, grief, and death, will have passed away. So maybe you aren't in the midst of suffering right now. Uh, here's, here's the word for you. This is your command from Galatians 6.2. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. And there's pain and suffering all around us. Some in the open and some hidden. Step in with the hands and feet of Christ and love one another. Follow up on how people are doing. Ask questions. Bring people some dinners. Be a part of the redemption story being written in their life. So to close, how do we reconcile suffering and a good God? We look at a good God suffering on the cross, and we know that God has not withdrawn from that problem, but he has stepped into it. And if you've ever lost someone close to, you, close to you, or ever been in any kind of heavy tragedy, you know, the best, sometimes the best thing anyone can do is just be there with you. They don't, they don't have to say the perfect words. Sometimes it's best that they don't even try. They don't need to bring you a gift. They don't have to explain away what happened. They just need to simply be there with you. And the promise Jesus offers us is that if you place your trust in him, he will always be with you. We hear in Isaiah 41.10, So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Please pray with me. Father, in the, in the midst of suffering, we know you are there. In the wilderness, we know you are there. In the confusion, we know you're there. And in the darkness, we know you, the light of the world, are there. Help us see your light, God. Lord, open our eyes. In Jesus' name, amen.